it behooves us to understand that our brains are question-answering machines. That's exactly how our brains interrogate and figure out the world. So it's constantly asking questions. What we also have to understand is when we deliberately lodge a question into our frontal lobe, our conscious mind, our brain has no choice but to begin to come up with answers, okay? We do this oftentimes without thinking about it, but we do it the wrong way. We say things like, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Or why are these people out to get me? As soon as we ask ourselves that question, our brain begins to come up with answers. And I guarantee you those answers aren't very empowering, <laughs> you know, and a lot of them are likely ridiculous. Every high-performing team I've ever encountered, every high-performing human being that I've ever encountered has always asked better questions. So things like, what can I learn here? What am I good at? Who's out there that can help me? What can I do in this moment? And so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a true believer that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent basis. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now here's today's question, what are the hidden attributes of high performance? What makes the influence of one person or one leader completely stand apart from the rest? Now, notice I'm not talking about skills here. In the words of my guest today, skills and attributes are two completely different things. Skills describe the tools that we use when the environment is familiar, whereas attributes, on the other hand, describe how you show up, especially when the going gets hard. Now, I'm a firm believer that if you really want to develop mastery in any area, you need to step into the arena where the stakes are the highest. You know, if you want to understand negotiation, ask an FBI hostage negotiator. If you want to really understand per perception and how to direct attention, ask a magician who performs nightly in front of thousands of people. And if it's the secrets to a compelling speech that you're looking for, turn to a presidential speechwriter who has had to take some of the greatest and most harrowing moments of our time and commit them to words. Now that's the driving philosophy pretty much behind this entire podcast, which is why today when it came to exploring the topic of peak performance, I sought out the wisdom of one particular man. Rich Divini is a former SEAL commander who has served up to 13 overseas deployments over 21 years as an active member and officer of the Armed Forces Most Elite Group. Over that time, he became obsessed with understanding what differentiates those who prevail from those who fail. And what he discovered completely changed his perception of human performance. Throughout that career, he was intimately involved in a specialized SEAL selection process. And the, the intention of that process was to whittle down hundreds of spec ops candidates down to just a handful of the most elite performers. However, oddly, what he started to notice was that those candidates that washed out and those that succeeded usually completely defied his predictions. Some could have all the right skills and still fail. 
Others just didn't seem to fit the bill, but would prove to be top performers. And as it turned out, skills alone just were not telling him what he needed to know. So over time, Rich began to conclude that beneath the skills, beneath the obvious skills that he was trained to look for, were the hidden drivers of performance. The core attributes, including grit, adaptability, courage and resilience that determined how successful we were going to be when the going gets tough. This conclusion evolved into a spec ops training program called Mind Gym, the first of its kind scientifically devised to help elite soldiers perform faster, longer and better in high stakes situations. He now works as a speaker, facilitator and consultant with the Chapman and Co Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek Inc. He's taught leadership and optimal performance to more than 5,000 businesses, athletic and military leaders from organizations as diverse as American Airlines, the San Francisco 49ers, Zoom, we all know Zoom, and Deloitte. In his latest book, which is called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, Rich defines and examines these attributes to explain how we perform as individuals and also how we perform best as a team. In this conversation, we dove into why quitting is different to giving up and why that's important. Where giving up is a slow process, quitting can be the key to taking back your strength and moving on when all the signs show it's time to change direction. We talk about the power of grit and what it means to be resilient and why reframing holds the key to staying in motion. Why freezing when the unexpected happens, is actually a really important strategy. Now, this one kind of blew my mind. I had thought that freezing was the last thing that you wanted to do. However, the SEALs are trained, rather than immediately moving into fight or flight, to actually freeze first and then ask themselves a series of vital questions before choosing their next move. We also go into the courage that it takes to speak truth to power and the impact it has on trust, loyalty, and those who are willing to follow you into the fire potentially years after they've left your command. And why the quality of our lives is directly proportionate to the quality of our questions. And how to start harnessing the potential of your mind as a question answering machine, which also has some incredible suggestions for powerful questions you can start feeding into your brain to immediately get better results. Now, there's something that has struck me since speaking with Rich. It's probably summed up in this sentence. The audacity of making a hostile environment your safe haven. Now, he talks about this as being one of the reasons that he joined the SEALs in the first place. And it got me thinking, you know, what feels like a hostile environment to you right now? It might be a situation. It might be a situation at work or at home. It might be the state of your industry or just the world at large. But here's a better question. What attributes could you consciously and deliberately start developing, like courage or adaptability, in order to make that exact environment, that exact hostile environment, your new comfort zone? And how might that change the game completely? Now, if you're looking to take your journey and influence to the next level right now, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the brand new version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions. Remember what I said about questions that I have found to be hands down to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your level of influence. Just pop in your email address. It will land in your inbox in the time it takes to pour a cup of tea. 
My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives one weekly bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift all on the topic of building a more influential life. They're short, they're sharp, and my intention is to make them wholly usable. So once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com, to become an insider. On that note, sit back, march on, and get ready for the curious and deeply insightful human being that is Rich Divin. Welcome to the podcast, Rich Divini. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'm going to kick off the podcast the way that I always kick the podcast off, and that is to ask what idea is having the most influence on you at the moment. And the reason I ask, for those who are regular listeners, you'll know, is because people who are on the edges of their field, who are leading the, the conversations in their field, usually find really incredible ideas before the rest of us. So what one idea is having the most impact on your thinking? Yeah, you know, I'm going to change my answer in the, uh, in the last 30 seconds because I just, I, the, the idea that I've been thinking about a lot, in fact, I just wrote a piece on this, is this idea that, uh, that quitting is not the same as giving up. Um, and I wrote a piece on this uh, because what occurred to me is that we, you know, quitting is, is, is in fact kind of an acute singular act, right? Um, and it's, it's very, you're pre very present when you quit. Um, I'm going to quit my workout. I'm going to quit my run. I'm going to quit, um, I don't know, quit doing whatever I'm doing, right? Um, giving up, uh, giving up means it, it, there's, there's more longevity to giving up. There, it means I'm, I'm, I'm ceasing to try. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping, I'm ceasing effort. I'm stopping my effort in doing something. And so what I, what I realized, because, you know, this whole Olympic stuff was going on and Simone Biles, you know, she, she dropped out of some events. And then, of course, here in the States, there was a there was the normal kind of bifurcation of of, <laughs> of opinions, you know, um, because everything has to be binary <laughs> nowadays. And a yeah, lot of people were, were hailing her as a hero. And some people were saying she's a quitter. And and, you know, of course, I I'm someone who really believes, you know, I, you know, there have been there, you know, I've done hundreds of combat missions and the Navy SEAL mantra people think is, hey, never quit, never quit. And that's that's true, but it's only kind of true. I've out of a hun out of hundreds of missions, I've actually quit on three. And when I say quit, I mean, I've been the officer in charge and I've decided, hey, we're going to stop and we're going to return to base. We're not going to continue on with the mission. And the reason why I made that decision is because um, you you continuously assess and read the environment and and what, what I think we all have to recognize is if, if we're not continually assessing and reading the environment and recognizing when we may be going down the wrong path, um, we are going to hurt ourselves. We're going to put ourselves in danger. We will not accomplish our goals. So, so I, it's, I said to myself, you know, it seems to me that, in fact, the, the secret to success is not necessarily um, to never quit. It's almost I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit as many times as I have to until I find the right way to do it, you know. Um, just so, so the idea is you can quit as many times as you have to, but never give up, right? Uh, because giving up is more long-term. I mean, what you're saying there is that giving up is, it feels incremental, right? Yeah. Giving up is a, is a, over a period of time where you just slowly and quietly retract your energy and effort to yeah. the point where you kind of, the wheels just stop spinning. That's right. Whereas quitting has a, has a certainty to it. There's, yeah. there's leadership yeah. to quitting. Well, and also, so, so just take the, take the example of, uh, of quitting a workout. I mean, it's, 
I might, I might be in my workout. I might find, man, I'm going to, I'm, I pull a muscle or I feel something wrong. It's like, I need to quit my workout. That doesn't mean I'm giving up on getting in shape or giving up on becoming healthy. Um, I'm quitting the moment because the moment is not feeling like it's in concert or in conduct of my overall goal. Um, so I think we have to, we have to almost, I think when we're looking at especially long-term goals and what we're doing, and, and the reason it occurred to me is because a lot of people, especially in the States, they're quitting their jobs. You know, they've come out of the, the pandemic and the quarantine made them recognize, you know, I'm not happy doing what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, I'm not fulfilled doing what I'm doing. So they're quitting their jobs. And, and there's actually nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, if, if they are doing, as long as it's not because it's hard, right? You don't want to quit just because it's hard. But if you're, if you're taking an honest look at, at the direction you're heading, the path you're on, you're saying, you know what, this path is not getting to getting me to where I want to go. Quit what you're doing and try something new. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the idea. I just want to dive dive into that very quickly because there's there's something here really for right now. Yeah. As you said, there's there's a lot of people quitting their jobs. There's a lot of people doing side hustles. There's a lot of people quitting the way they used to do family. Mm-hmm. Quitting. I mean, I can think even in my own life. You know, we used to do family this way. There's parts of that that weren't working, but we were just too too much in motion to reconsider them. So, when you're in that moment, when you when you're feeling like okay something's not working here is there a barometer that you use is there like a i don't want to say checklist but is mm-hmm. there something in your gut where you go okay are these things true and if they are it's time to quit that's a great question and i think i think there is a there should be some sort of mental checklist and the way i would describe that is is if i were to take one of the missions that we were on um and in fact this was the, i was telling a story about the it was the very first mission that i was on we had just gotten to afghanistan for one of our deployments it was the I had just taken over the specific uh, SEAL troop. So it was my first time in charge of this specific SEAL troop. I'd worked very hard to get there, very excited. It was our very first mission in country. And um, and it was as we were, and, and so the mission we were gonna do, it seemed like a pretty simple one, you know, fairly simple uh, objective. The the terrain was simple, the, the, the plan seemed fairly simple. Um, during the planning process, though, we started getting a few hiccups, right? Comms was, the comms frequencies had to be changed. The routes were a little bit difficult. Some of the gear we were going to use wasn't available. And so, and so, of course, we adjust and we, we you know, kind of move on. And then, of course, we're, we're on our way into the target and a couple more things happen. You know, the comms, in fact, and the vehicles hadn't been changed. So we had to pull over and change those. And then we found that the routes that we had ch- chosen weren't good. And we, so we had to move to a secondary and a tertiary route. So the, the timeline began to expand. And so, and all, all things, all little things that weren't insurmountable, but, but were, you know, I, I, I ticked away in my brain because whenever you read any type of after action report on any tragedy, whether it's a military one or an air disaster or whatever, it's almost always a series of little things that, that add up to this big thing. And, and we always Death say, by a thousand yeah, cuts. and yeah, so you say, always say hindsight is twenty twenty, And of course, all of us on the back end are saying, how could they not have seen this? Right. But. But these little things, if you're not if you're not taking notice, they will add up without you knowing. So, so I always say there's not there was never a specific number of things that uh, that made me click over and say, okay, that's it, <laughs> you know. But there there is there is going to be enough where you say, you know what, this doesn't seem like it's working. I think it's time we turn around. And so so whether it's a mission, whether it's a pathway or on, whether it's parenting, whether it's the way we're we're working, I think it it would behoove us to to make that list in our heads, you know, because it's always, a, it's always a bunch of little things and little things are always easy to say, okay, it's okay. Forget about it. We'll t- we'll... But it's that, ad- it's the adding up of the little things that, that, that 
eventually lead to either tragedy or failure or man this was just a wrong pathway to go so i think i think what you're saying makes sense and there's also another language for that right that that feeling of being out of flow Mm-hmm. You know, the difference between being in flow when, you know, it's not easy, you might not be having fun, you might not be happy, but you're you're moving forward and things, you know, one breadcrumb after another breadcrumb after another breadcrumb, things are working. Yeah. You feel like you're moving with a tide. Right. And then there's the other feeling of the banging your head against a brick wall. Nothing is working here and I can keep going until I have a very sore head or I can stop, retreat, yeah. reconsider. Yeah. And it all takes... A, it, it all takes um, uh, thought and in, introspection, um, because again, you know, I talk about perseverance as an attribute, and the way I de- the way I deconstruct perseverance as an attribute, I say it's it's a mixture of tenacity, persistence, and fortitude, and and it's interesting because if you look at persistence and tenacity, they're they're actually in fact not the same thing. Persistence is I'm going to uh, I'm in in the effort to solve a problem or or accomplish an act, I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over again until it happens, right? This is the stone, it's the stonecutter approach, right? The stonecutter taps the same spot, you know, 99 times and sees nothing. And then the hundredth tap, the rock breaks, right? That's the stonecutter, that's what persists. So the stonecutter needs persistence, right? Tenacity is different. Tenacity is I'm gonna try something and if it doesn't work, I'm gonna try something else. And if it doesn't work, I'm gonna try something else. That's the car mechanic approach, right? The car, car mechanic's gonna look at the belts and then if it's not the belts, go to the carburetor. If it's not the carburetor, go to the the, the spark plugs, whatever it is. Well, if you have a if you have a tenacious stone cutter, you're never going to get a, <laughs> a stone carved, right? If you have a persistent mechanic, you're going to just end up with a, a large bill, <laughs> and your car's not going to get fixed. But as human beings, as as people who kind of work in in life, right, we actually have to balance both because sometimes persistence is necessary, and then sometimes tenacity is necessary. Fortitude is actually kind of the mental toughness to be able to move through either one. But regardless of any of that, it takes a deliberate thought process to say, okay, is this something that in fact will and need, will take and needs persistence? In other words, I know if I just keep on doing this, listen, if you keep on working out, if you keep on eating healthy, you may not see results in the first week, you may not see results in the second week, you may not see the results of the third week, but you will see results, right? That's where persistence matters, right? Or it might be something else, tenacity, where, hey, I need to try something, and if it doesn't work, I need to try something else, you know? And so, so all of this takes some introspection, some thought, and some real kind of decision-making on our part to decide, is this something that I need to quit and try something? Tenacity, in fact, is just a, it's just a different form of quitting. <laughs> all right, so. But as a leader as well, and, you know, you know, I love the fact that we're getting into some of these attributes just even with this question. You know, as a leader, it takes a part of you always being in observer mode. Mm-hmm. You know, all the while I'm listening to you, you know, and having been someone who's led a large team and, and not in the same context as you, but there's the part of you that has to be in the doing, the getting done, the ticking of boxes. Mm-hmm. And then there always has to be a part of you that remains stepped back in observer mode going, okay, I'm, I'm watching this as well as doing. Yeah. What have you learned about that that balance about keeping that balance between observer and in the trenches doing? Well, I think I, I, interestingly, I think that I think the best leadership is mostly observing because again, I, I kind of say that if you're not as a leader, if you're not if you're if you're not doing your job, well, I should say this. I, I used to tell my junior officers, you have to accept the irony, what I call the irony of leadership, which is if you do your job correctly, you eventually work yourself out of a job because your your job as a leader is to create a team 
of people who actually can run without you and in fact can eventually outpace you. And so as a leader, our job is to empower and to inspire and to develop, right? To, to create new leaders. And so if we do our job correctly, what we're doing is we're creating a, a team and a group that actually does the stuff, right? And, and we shouldn't necessarily be in the trenches um, unless we really, really have to be. And certainly there are some cases where the leader has to step in and say, okay, this is what, because that's what we do. This is what we're good. This is the direction we're going. But that has to be few and far between. It has to be more extreme. And I'll tell you, even, even in some of the extreme situations, um, if you've developed your team right, you're going to have people who are making those decisions, you know, without your, they don't need your guidance because they already have your, your, your direction, your guidance, your purpose, um, and they're inspired to work. So I think the best type of leadership is much more, hey, I'm, I'm actually, my job is to step up, to see the whole thing kind of from the 50,000 foot view and then make course corrections or little tweaks uh, for the team because that's where they need me to be. Um, because again, my, my snipers and my reconnaissance guys don't need me next to them planning the routes, like looking at the next step. They need me back. They need me looking at the whole picture. Um, so I think that's the, the best form of leadership is to be probably... 90 to 95% observing from the 50,000 foot view and then maybe 5% kind of directing or in the weeds um, versus the 50-50 or, or in some cases, the, you know, some leaders, they're not really leaders, they're more micromanagers who think they need to be 85% in the weeds <laughs> and 15% observing. But that includes the distance to be able That's to make right. the, the, the gut call yeah. of this isn't on, in the overall picture, this isn't working. That's right. You we need, need yeah, because you, you need to have that view because you need to be able to, your job is to take in all the information um, so that no one else has to. Um, and, um, and that takes altitude. And that means you have to build an environment of action and especially trust. You know, the, the team has to trust each other, trust you. And, uh, and then you actually can fulfill your role as a leader. I want to jump into um, jump into the attributes now. Now, you you noticed uh, when you were in the seals that those who succeeded weren't necessarily who you expected mm -hmm. to succeed, and that the ones that did succeed had certain attributes. Talk to talk to me about the difference there between. Let's start with the difference between skills yeah. and attributes because there's a fundamental difference there, right? There is, and and the and the the difference uh, it came to light in my experience as I was running uh, a, a different version of SEAL training. I wasn't running the basic SEAL training. I was running selection and training for one of our more elite SEAL teams. Um, and it was, uh, and in doing so, because we had attrition, about a 50% attrition, we had to find a better way to articulate why guys weren't making through. Because in our, in, in my particular case, the training I was running, we were getting very experienced SEALs to come to our selection and training and, and still getting about a 50% attrition rate. So when you tell a very experienced SEAL, who has like 10 years as a SEAL in combat and everything that, hey, I'm sorry, you didn't have what, you, don't, you didn't cut it to, you know, to be here. Uh, you need more than just, you can't shoot very well. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so it led me to A, look back and B, kind of think about the difference uh, between skills and attributes. And one of the, one of the kind of aha moments I had was when I thought about basic SEAL training, which is BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. It's where a Navy recruit goes to the initial six month kind of hell hellish course where you go through and and you become a navy seal on the back end and the attrition for that is about 90 percent right so you so like my class started with 165 or so we graduated 38 and that's the, that's normal numbers right and in 
And I thought back, you know, I thought back in, in basic SEAL training, I spent, anybody spends hundreds of hours running with big heavy boats on their heads. They, we spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running around those things and then freezing in the surf zone. And I thought about it, I, I, I've been on hundreds of combat missions overseas and never on one did I carry a boat on my head or a 300 pound telephone pole on my, my shoulder. So, so what it told me was that when we were doing that in SEAL training, they weren't in fact training us to be Navy SEALs. They were actually just putting us into situations to tease out these qualities. And that began to kind of highlight the difference between skills and attributes. And so, so real, real briefly, skills are things, they're, they're not inherent, they're things that are not inherent to our nature. We're not born with the ability to ride a bike or shoot a gun or, or drive a car. We're taught and we train to do those things. The skills also direct our behavior in known environments and specific environments, right? Here's how and when to drive a car. Here's how and when to shoot a gun. Here's how and when to throw a ball. And then because they're visible and they're tangible, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can score them. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. You can score them. You can put stats around them. You can measure them. You can put them on resumes. What, what skills don't tell us is how people are going to show up in, in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an, in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. Um, and so in those environments, we lean on attributes. Um, attributes are inherent right we're all born with levels of situational awareness patience adaptability resilience now certainly it develops they develop over time and experience but you can see levels of this stuff in small children i mean as parents we know i mean there you can see levels of you can see if a one-year-old is inherently patient or inherently impatient i mean you can see it you know um and they develop but the thing about attributes is they don't tell us they don't dictate behavior they inform behavior right so so my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times right so they inform how we're going to show up and then because they're hidden because they're kind of hard to see they are very difficult to assess measure and test um, you can't necessarily sit across an interview uh, with a candidate for for a business and assess their level of resilience or their level of adaptability right they are the most visible during times of stress challenge and uncertainty so um, so this is why the laboratory that I had was so perfect. And then, of course, I got out of the Navy and I realized that a lot of businesses were coming to me and saying, hey, we're we're forming dream teams, the best marketer, the best salesperson, the best, uh, you know, accountant, whatever it is. We're putting all these, these these dream people together and it's going well for a few days or weeks. But as soon as things go sideways, as soon as the plan changes or doesn't go as we planned, the teams start to turn toxic. You know, you know, what's going on? And I said, well, the reason why it's turning toxic is because you're selecting your teams based on the wrong things. You're selecting them based on skills or attributes. Human beings are inherently unpredictable beings, right? So, so to put to design a team of humans based on a bunch of skills that we think are going to fit like puzzle pieces is not going to work. We have to do it based on attributes uh, because attributes are going to tell us how we actually perform and interact with each other. So, so that was really the impetus of the book. And then, of course, I. I realized, hey, someone should write a book on this. And <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and why not you? Yeah, why not me? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love that definition there. The, the definition of attributes that I just took out of what you said, you know, how you show up when it's hard. Mm-hmm. And that, those are the people you want to be on teams with. Those are people you want to be in a marriage with. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the people that you want as friends, like people who show up when it's hard. But that brings me to the next kind of natural question for me, whereas it's easier to train for skills. Totally. Yeah. Because you can break a skill down into its component parts. You can wire yourself for skills. 
how do you how do you train for attributes? Yeah, yeah. You don't. I don't know if you train for attributes. You develop attributes, and and you're right. In fact, that's a good. You you brought up a good uh, kind of point that I'll say a back of the envelope test to determine whether or not it's a skill or an attribute because they could they get conflated all the time would be to ask yourself can I teach it or can it be taught if the answer is yes it's probably a skill if the answer is no it's probably an attribute so the example would be Julie Julie you could say um, Rich I want to learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye every time okay well I could take you to the range and within two hours teach you how to do that okay that is a skill or you could say Rich I want to learn how to be more adaptable or be more patient. Well, I can't teach you to do that, right? That's, you know, so, so to develop an attribute takes um, uh, self-motivation, takes self-direction, and then it takes a willingness for that individual to find, seek and find environments inside of which they can train, or I should say develop that attribute. So if, if someone wants to develop their patience, they need to then go find environments that test and tease their patients, right? So whatever that is, it could be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drive in traffic, or I'm gonna stand at the longest line as the grocery store, or have kids, that's a really good one. <laughs> you, wanna, you wanna develop I kids. was just thinking that, <laughs> right. I was so, literally um, in my brain. Yeah, so, to, so it's, it's harder to develop attributes. It takes self, it's, it's, all, it's all inside of us. Um, and it, the good news is, a couple bits of good news. The first bit, bit of good news is that we, we all have all of the attributes. Okay, it's just the difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. So adaptability is one I use as an example. If, if 10 is high and one is low, I'm about a level eight on adaptability, right? Which means when the environment changes around me, outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow, right? I just, I just do, I just adapt with it, you know? And, and it's, it's, it's not difficult, it's just like, okay, whatever. Someone else might be a level three on adaptability, which means the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them, it's painful, it's like hard. Now they're still adaptable. It's just a lot harder for them, right? So, um, so, so that's number one is that we have to re recognize we all we all have all of the attributes. We're just different, you know. The difference is the levels to which we have each. Um, and the second piece of, piece of good news is we don't necessarily have to develop all the attributes we're low on, right? I mean, it really depends on the niche in life that we're in and what's required for that niche, right? Um, the the stand-up comic who's low on empathy doesn't necessarily need to develop his or her empathy. In fact, I would argue that too much empathy could be detrimental to a stand-up comic, right? Because how can you find the funny in a funeral if you're too empathetic, right? So, so the idea is to figure out where you stand on these things and then figure out, okay, based on my own kind of niche or whatever niche I wanna uh, go for or, or, or succeed in, what are those attributes that I'm a little low on that actually could help me in my endeavors? Um, and then there might be some like, hey, I'm fine. I'm, I'm low on that. I mean, stand-up comic, again, stand-up comic might not need a lot of the leadership attributes because it's a pretty, you know, self-directed profession. You don't, you're not really leading anybody, you know, so, uh, or a team, or the team ability ones for that matter, right? So, so it's really, uh, it takes some introspection and kind of some analysis on ourselves. And, and that's kind of good news because no one should need, like, need to feel like, oh, gosh, I have to be high on all this. It's impossible. And it's also, it's not necessary. But it's good to have a blueprint, right? It's, it's good, good to have, to have a blueprint, have, yeah. It's good to have the markers along the way, yeah. and then you can choose the road. Well, and I was, it, it was Without the map, you can't choose the road. And I would say, you know, I, I kind of say we're all, you know, I, we always have to remember we're all human beings, you know, um, but I would say we're kind of like automobiles. Like some of us are Jeeps, some of us are SUVs, some of us are Ferraris. And there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do thing, things the Ferrari can't do, and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But it, it would behoove us to lift our hood and figure out, what type of engine we are because we may be a jeep that's been trying to run on a ferrari track or a ferrari that's been trying to run on a jeep track and again 
that's okay too. If if I'm a, I'm pretty much a Jeep. If I were to, <laughs> if I were to, you know, classify myself. But if I were to say, hey, I'm a Jeep and I want to run on a Ferrari track, then I know, okay, based on my Jeep engine, these are the things I'm going to need to work on to run better on the Ferrari track. It's always a choice, right? But I also might be like, hey, I'm a Jeep and I've been trying to run on the Ferrari track. Why don't I just go run on this Jeep track? I'll be much happier. You know, I'll really excel. So I think that's where this type of uh, self-analysis really helps someone. I want to let's jump into some of these attributes okay. now. So I wanted to start with grit. And it's a fairly obvious place to start. You know, we've all needed our fair share recently. And for many, you know, it's still a, a daily requirement to tap into our grit. Let's start with how do you, how do you define grit? Yeah. <clears throat> grit was a grit was a cool one because I I it was the it's the first category in the book, and it's also I don't I don't put any value on the attributes like these these are more valuable than others, but I would say the grit ones are probably the most important ones in life. <laughs> you know, grit is our ability as human beings, and a, a lot of people think of grit as as its own singular attribute, but it's not. In fact, a combination of things. Um, it's the ability to kind of punch through those acute challenges and those acute obstacles right so the 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 short term like i'm just going to power through i'm going to i'm going to gut it out and you know persevere and just make it happen right um whereas the drive is more like hey long term i'm going to set and achieve long-term goals um but ultimately grit from an attribute perspective come comes down to four attributes courage uh adaptability perseverance and resilience um and it's a it's a healthy dose of all four of those that actually bake and catalyze to to come up with grit. Grit is the result of those, you know. And they're really interesting. Courage is literally um, the ability to step into our fear. You know, um, you know we can't. And again, courage cannot exist in the absence of fear. It's a cool saying that we've all heard before, but it's also neurologically been proven, right? Because there's actually what's what some have nicknamed kind of the fear circuit. You know, when we when we begin to, when fear begins to bubble up, we get this, the, the amygdala response and, and we get this choice of fight or flight, you know. Um, some people add freeze in there, but freeze is in fact neurologically just an oscillation between the two. It's, it's a choice. It's, it's us trying to decide what, which one to do. But we, so we can either flee or we can fight, which means fight is step into our fear. Well, when we decide to step into our fear to fight, we, in fact, there's a, there's a specific switch that gets kicked into our, in our brain. And that switch, when it's kicked, gives us a dopamine reward. Um, and that is literally courage defined. It's the courage switch. Um, and so, so our ability to step into those things that we uh, are afraid of, um, and again, that's after assessing the appropriate amount of risk, because sometimes flee is the right choice too, right? But, um, um, but our ability to step into those things gives us a reward. Uh, and again, this is by design. Nature designed us to be explorers, designed us to kind of go out and have to hunt for our food and find new shelter and discover new things. Um, it is literally neurologically why and what has caused us to go from cave dwellers to space explorers is this, is this reward system that, um, that is given to us by stepping into our fear. So that's, that's the number one thing about grit is that is it's going to feel uncomfortable, probably feel a little scared. We have to decide to step in. Once we step in, we're going to have to initiate our perseverance. And perseverance, like I described, is the combination of things. It's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to nug it out. And I'm going, to, I'm going to try, 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 whatever trying looks like. And I'm going to have the mental toughness to do that. And then adaptability is literally the, uh, the idea that everything 
around us is going to change. I don't think we, there's nothing in the known universe that doesn't change over time. <laughs> I mean, that we know of, right? Um, so we can either adapt or we can go extinct. I kind of, in the, in the book I talk about, you can be the dinosaur or the frog, right? If you choose not to adapt, you will go extinct, right? So, so adaptation is also what has caused us to be who we are as human beings today, um, which means, hey, as the environment changes, I'm going to adapt so that I can, I can adapt with that environment. And then through all of that, there's this idea of resilience. We have to be able to, after, a, after all this kind of fighting and, and kind of getting knocked down, we have to be able to b bounce back to our baseline. Um, because if we don't, we're going to fall into entropy and, and just, you know, collapse from exhaustion, right? So, so part of grit is the ability to, once I'm hit, once I go through all that stuff, I can effectively and efficiently come back to baseline so that I can do it again. Um, and that's really, that's the cycle of grit, if, if, if there's a way to say it. I just want to go backwards there before, before we kind of come forwards. I wanted to go to that frozen point that you made, because I'd never thought about frozen as being the pivot point between two between either i'm going to fight or i'm going to run I'm yeah. going to retreat or i'm going to fight and it feels like especially at the moment there's a lot of people in that and i certainly have been in that moment over the past kind of 12 to 18 months of just freeze yeah don't have don't feel like i have enough information the terrain is completely unclear um don't don't know what's going to happen next don't know what to do i have no map here it's like the bunny in the headlights yeah is there something that you have learned through your career that gets you out of that mode quickly? Is there some kind of, again, I'll use the word barometer, you mm -hmm. know, all right, I've got five minutes to make a decision. I've got three days. I've got, what do you use to kick yourself out of that? Yeah. I mean, in a word, it's, it's, it's thought, right? It's thought and questions. And, and again, the, the freeze response um, can sometimes feel a bit more neurological, right? I mean, if we're if we're an amygdala hijack, right, which is now our 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 frontal lobe is completely <laughs> receded and we're in limbic response, right? Our body is going to act without us. Um, sometimes we will feel frozen and we it will feel like we can't think. Uh, some people actually faint, but what neuro neurologists will say is that actually is a it's actually a retreat mechanism is when you actually faint, you know, so it's not really frozen. You're fainting as a retreat mechanism. Um, but really what, so what we have to recognize about the freeze uh, response, that middle ground is actually, it's a very, very powerful place to be because it allows us deliberate thinking as long as we let it. And I would say most seals are designed to freeze first, right? I notice when I, when something really um, intense happens, immediately I slow down, right? And my and I begin to think through. I was like, okay, what's going on? And it's a series of questions about our environment. Okay, what about this environment do I understand? Um, what what from that list? What can I control and what can I move into? Um, and when I have those answers, I have something to step forward. So so I think if if most of us feel like we're kind of frozen, um, it's time to use that use that frozen time frame to actually begin to ask some questions about our environment, so that we may figure out the next move um, and we have to recognize the next move might not necessarily seem like it's the answer the next move is simply a move um, because again to oftentimes to to see the next set of options we have to take a step around the next corner right you know so so movement is key in that and um and the way we do that is we ask deliberate questions and those questions are to put quite simply what about this environment do i understand and once we get that list, okay, what about that list can I control in this moment? Pick something, do that, okay, and then ask the question again. 
then pick something and do that and then ask the question. And this is literally how you step through uh, stress, challenge, and uncertainty. You just keep on asking questions. You know, I, lo I love the fact that you just said the next right thing. Actually, this time last year, I, I actually put together a special podcast series called The Next Right Thing, mm. just literally because it was all I could think of to do. Yeah. The normal podcast conversations just didn't feel right at that time. And all I could think of was what's the next right thing. And yeah. so I literally put together a series asking people, what's your next right thing? But I want to I wanna just keep with that, but move it into the resilience okay. part of this. So... I've heard you talk before about the importance of reframes and resets. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something that feels like it's needed on the regular right now, you know, multiple times a day resetting. What's the key to that reset and reframe that enables resilience? Yeah, well, first is recovery. Um, we ha and by recovery, it means you have to get out of the you have, to, you have to be out of the moment, okay? We can't recover in the moment necessarily, right? So whatever that moment is, whether it's you're fighting, you're, you're in the middle of chemotherapy, right? Um, or you're in the middle of a tough exam mark or you're, or you're struggling through a period of COVID. Now, if the, if the stress is more chronic, which means it's of duration, then we're gonna, it's going to be incumbent on us to find recovery moments inside of that stress. This is COVID for all of us, right? COVID is, is continuing on. I mean, we're, it's, now we're in a year and a half into this stuff. So all of us need to think about recovery inside of this environment because the stuff's not done. Um, recovery, the number one way to recover as a human being is sleep, is proper sleep, okay? Um, however, we can also recover through um, whatever activities bring us to an emotional state of recovery. Emotional states of recovery are joy, peace, uh, contentment, fulfillment, those things. Because when we're in those emotions, what's happening physiologically is we're making a chemical DHEA. Um, DHEA is a building block of estrogen and, and testosterone, and it repairs damage done by cortisol. And we all know cortisol is the, is the kind of the action chemical that gets initiated during stress and anger and stuff like that. Completely um, useful for our, for our physiology, especially when we're in high stress, cortisol, we need cortisol because it shuts down other things. Um, but it also does some, does some, I shouldn't say damage, it has some wear and tear on our system. So, so our body is designed to uh, move into parasympathetic state and give us, generate DHEA. Well, we can gauge our, our, our production of this just by our emotions. And, and so, so activities that bring us joy and peace and contentment are in fact recovery activities. Now, again, you and I will, uh, will completely agree that that is highly subjective, okay? Um, for someone, it could be surfing. For another person, it could be church. For another person, it could be reading a book. Um, some, for some, it could be meditation, you know? Um, I, I'm someone who, I, I live here in Virginia and I go for uh, runs in the woods, you know? And I don't time myself, I don't listen to music. I just, I'm in nature going at my pace by myself, running in the woods. That's very cathartic for me. It's a recovery moment for me. So, so we, get, we need to find those moments of recovery that allow us to begin to move towards resilience, to begin that bounce back, you know. Now, the, true, the truest resiliency comes after reflection. Now, reflection ultimately um, can't be engaged in um, um, really effectively until we've recovered enough so that the emotions of the event no longer affect us that much, right? We're not triggered anymore because anytime we're, if we're still triggered emotionally by an event, 
we as soon as we get in that emotional state, we 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 cease to be able to answer some really subjective logical questions about the event, right? So so we have to get ourselves to a position where we're not as emotionally affected, and then we need to ask some questions about the event from a subjective position. What did I learn? Um, how did I grow? What mistakes did I make? You know, how is this my fault, right? And then also, how is this someone else's fault? And if we, again, we can't, yeah, you, you're nodding and we can't, you know, we can't ask those two questions unless we're completely over the emotion, <laughs> right? Because uh, I'm nodding at the, at the question of how is this my fault? Yeah. Because I think that, you know, what did I learn? How did I go? Um, how is it somebody else's fault? We can answer those relatively easily, yeah. usually. Mm -hmm. The how is this my fault is one of those questions that takes the deepest reflection and the most distance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. to be able to achieve that effectively without going, you know, there are easy ways to answer that question. Well, it's my fault because I should never have started this project with you in the first That's place. That's right. Listen, or you know, listen like, to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are easy, there are um, <laughs> fake ways yes. of answering those questions. That's right. Easy ways. That's right. But if you really want to answer those questions powerfully, yeah. then it takes some distance. Yeah. Um, and those answers are going to bring you the most growth. Those those honest answers, to be honest, to, to be honest with the, with each other. Now, real quick caveat, because I think we I, we have to uh, um, mention this. Um, there are some events, there are some traumas and things that happen to us that take a while to recover from, and we can't necessarily do on our own, right? So so I always urge people if you are feeling like it's taking a while and it's hard for you to recover and you're still getting triggered, get help, right? There are people out there who can help you um, move past those events to a state where you're actually able to ask those sub subjective questions but i've had friends um who've ended up you know uh, you know unfortunately committing suicide because they they're unable to move past those that trauma on their own and just because of bravado they don't want to go get help you know so so resilience again we can practice resilience every day with just little tragedies you know, the fight with the spouse or the traffic jam or the bad day at work. And I would encourage people to practice resilience with little tragedies. So you understand you can exercise that muscle so that when the big stuff happens, you actually know what, what needs to happen. But also when the big stuff happens, if you find yourself having trouble doing it on your own, get help and have, help, have people help you do it because it's very powerful. I'm just thinking about a reframe on that question of fault as well. Mm -hmm. You know, to replace that, if that doesn't feel right for you, to replace that with, you know, how was I more powerful than I knew in that moment? Yeah. You know, that's still a question around, you know, I am, you know, this this starts with me. I am, I am more powerful than I know. I impact my environment in more ways than I know. I am more capable than I know. Yeah. You can but also use the, word, um, use the word mistake. I think mistake, you know, what, what was my mistake is different than how is this my fault, right? Um, mm. um, because sometimes we'll make a mistake. It's like, oh, my gosh, that was a mistake. Now, fault is like is a heavy term, <laughs> right? And, and you're right. You need to be really distant um, emotionally to be able to say, how is this my fault? But you can say, hey, what was, what was a mistake I made? You know, what were some, some mistakes? That's a little bit of softer way of kind of maybe an entry into that ultimate question. I want to go into another point that you made in the book which was mastering the pivot mm -hmm. and again it's it's one of those words we've you know i think we all roll our eyes now when we hear the word hear the word pivot however it is highly necessary at the moment and something that a lot of people are still trying to get their heads around um i want to talk about your personal experience here mm -hmm. because when i was thinking about mastering the pivot after after reading the book i was thinking what a huge pivot you made after you left the seals yeah 
how did you how did you approach that what help did you get what guidance was useful for you yeah. in that moment yeah well the pivot is important for two reasons um and it's because of the two different types of pivots in life okay first there's the pivot that uh we don't see coming <laughs> when life makes us pivot <laughs> okay and that's covid right that's i mean there's so many we can the the, the thing about that is that's always going to happen to all of us right so so it, it, it behooves us to understand that, um, that concept just from that aspect alone. But then there are the pivots that we choose. You know, we say, hey, I'm, I'm going to deliberately uh, take a different direction, turn 90 degrees, do something else. And that's really all it is. I mean, the pivot is really um, uh, starting something completely fresh, some, something completely new in your life. Um, and it can be, it can be something uh, a little bit less um, life-changing, like, hey, I'm just going to start a new language. I'm going to start learning a new language, you know, because it's a challenge. It's accepting a challenge. I'm going to um, go on a trip that I've been putting off, right? That could be a pivot. It could be something more life-changing. Like I'm going to change my job, you know, or or I'm going to change my identity, you know, uh, and by that, I mean, I'm going to go from a Navy SEAL to an author, right, or something like that, you know, so... Um, so I think, uh, I think what we have to recognize, and this is part of the adaptability concept, I think. I think we have to uh, understand that because everything changes, um, we are going to have to pivot, and it behooves us to understand what that pivot means, and it, it, it also behooves us to understand how we deal with pivots. You know, um, I would guarantee every single listener can think of times in their lives where they've had to pivot. Uh, in life, whether they chose to or they didn't choose to, and it's a good it's a good chance to kind of autopsy one's actions uh, during that time frame. How did you do? You know, what did that feel like when you had to? Was it difficult? And if it was difficult, why? Perhaps there's enough distance at this point where the emotions are dissipated, so you can actually ask some really cool questions about, uh, and uh, so you can reflect on that and and really start to put together your performance during pivots. You know, um, and the important thing is if you do this for yourself. And you understand where you can effectively pivot and how good you are at it and how or how bad or how willing you are um you can then start to choose your own pivots you know um when i finished the seal teams coming out of the military i i made a distinct decision i did i wanted nothing to do with the military you know some people go they they leave a career and they just start they just do a job they get a civilian job with the military afterwards and there's nothing wrong with that that's not a pivot in my case you know i wanted to i wanted nothing to do i wanted something different um, and I said, you know, I like, for example, I didn't like talking in front of people like, you know, public speaking and all that stuff. So I said, well, I don't like that. And I, it actually scares me. So I should probably, I should probably try to do that, you know? And so I got a job with a leadership Institute and I was in front of people talking, giving speeches and teaching, you know, interacting with people. And, um, and it was a true pivot. And, and part of that is I'm really, uh, interested in kind of, understanding our identities and shifting identities. You know, I, I, I've been saying that this probably gonna be the second book is on identity. I think identity is so important. Um, I'm really into what I call elemental behavior, which is who are we at our most raw? You know, how do we show up? The beginning of that is attributes, right? Um, part of that is also identity. And I think we, we sometimes deliberately, but oftentimes inadvertently stack identities on ourselves um, and then find ourselves or, or maybe just begin behaving in ways um, that are more in service to those identities than they are true to ourselves, right? This is the, uh, the rabid sports fan, right? You know, here, let's just use the United States. There are people who, uh, who, who are, say, Philadelphia Eagles football team fans, you know, 
who will beat the crap out of another team's fans because they're eagle because they're football fans of a one team. I mean, so how does that behavior happen when you're? It's just a, it's just a game, you know. Uh, and one of the reasons is because you're absorbing that identity so deeply that you're behaving because of it. So, um, so long story short, we could go off on a whole other tangent, but but part of pivoting sometimes is saying, okay, what identity did I have? And then can I take that? Can I put it on the shelf? You know, so me, Navy SEAL, kind of on the shelf, and then try a new identity. And that doesn't mean you can't kind of look back and 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 pull things from that old identity. I mean, I've done that for the book. I've I've used lessons, but it does mean that I'm I've put it on the shelf. Like I am no longer a Navy SEAL, nor do I purport to be. You know, nor do I want to be. I mean, I'm you know you age out of that type of stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm not even in the military anymore. Um, but can you pivot in a way more deliberately? So, long answer, but that's kind of a, a, a I guess a rant on pivot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that there's there's something really, there's a lot of things important there, but one of the things that I'm just kind of holding on to, I've talked on this podcast before about, you know, certain times in my life where I've had to take a massive pivot. Mm -hmm. And one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received during that time was from a mentor of mine. And I had sold out of, of one business and I was left with this completely empty blank piece of paper as to what on earth I was going to do next. And he said to me, he, he invited me to his farm. We sat in, he's got a tree house on his farm and we sat down and I had all these ideas. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. And he said, you know what? The most important thing that you could do right now is just stop. And it goes back to that resetting thing okay. we were talking. He said, you need to stop because if you start writing the next chapter now, all you are gonna do is rewrite the last chapter because it's all you know, it's your identity. Yeah. You're too bound up in it. You need a gap, you need to take a blank time, sit in the gap for long enough so that when you pick up the pen, you write something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And that one piece of advice stood me in the most amazing stead and has stood me in the most amazing stead yet to consciously own the gap, mm -hmm. consciously own that time in between yeah. to rewrite. Yeah. But there was something else that you said there as well, which actually is a note that I took from the book, I think, when you were talking about public speaking and you were saying, you know, scared the hell out of me. So I thought, hey, I should do that. Mm -hmm. You had written in the book, one of the reasons you went into the SEALs was the audacity of making a hostile environment your safe haven. Yeah. And how much that appealed to you. I, I, talk, to, talk to us about that, you know, because I love that thought. Okay, well, this is a hostile environment. What if I were to make this the safest place possible for me? What if I were to get so comfortable here, so resilient that this could be a safe haven for me? Yeah, part of it is just because I liked the badassery of it. There is nothing wrong with, with, with developing your badassery. That's right. Yeah, trust I me. mean, the fact that these guys, I mean, it, they're always like, if the, the enemy will never be brave enough or stupid enough to follow you in, into the water. So when in doubt, go there. Uh, that, I just love that idea. Um, but I do think it's um, it's it's part of this, uh, I, I guess, deliberate um, pursuit to try something new, try something different, try something that, that, that other people may not try. Um, and I think that's a very powerful way to deliberately pivot. Now, again, it should be in context with your overall purpose and goal. I mean, you know, again, you know, don't I wouldn't recommend people just to like anybody who has nothing to do with the water and doesn't have, you know, nothing in their future or whatever has anything to do. You don't need to go scuba diving at night just to do it unless it's unless it's of meaning to you. But there are so many different things inside of our own niches uh, 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 niches that that are that are that those those places that people don't necessarily go because they seem unsafe and 
And you know what? That's where the iconoclasts are found. You know, I mean, they're, those are the those are the people who set out the, the discoveries, the, the explorers. And it's going to be hard. I mean, it's going to be hard, and people are going to probably um, uh, uh, get after you for it. But I, a good friend once told me when I was feeling a little bit down one time. Um, he said, you know, um, the uh, you can always tell the pioneers, you know, because they're the ones with arrows on their back, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's true. I mean, because when you're going to pioneer. When you're going to discover, it's going to take some time. I mean, those people who, who were the original pioneers on this planet, the people who are space pioneers, um, uh, they're all people who are stepping out into the unknown. And I think, I mean, again, for me, that's the juice of life. It really is. And I, I, I get it. Not, it's not that for everybody. But again, if we think about just neurologically, how yeah, we get rewarded for that. <laughs> you know, we get dopamine hits for that. You know, you can, you can step out into the unknown um, in any in any capacity, and if you're an introvert, you know you don't have to be start with public speaking. You can go you can go strike up a conversation with a stranger, or you can deliberately go to a dinner party that you might have avoided and, and make a commitment to start a conversation with at least two people. You know, um, and you will as uncomfortable as it might feel, you will feel good after doing it. You'll feel on top of the world. Um, harness that feeling and practice it with other things is what I would recommend. Just go into that courage piece for a second, because I know courage is courage is an important part yeah. of the attributes. I wanted to talk about the the last five weeks of third phase in your in your Navy SEALs training yeah. when you you were sent to an island mm -hmm. and what happened at the end there because I think it's a really beautiful example of courage in action. Yeah. The um. All right, so so real quick, uh, in in SEAL training and buds, it's three phases. Um, third phase, you it's all land warfare, so you learn all your weaponeering and demolition. And for the last five weeks, you go out to this island off the coast of San Diego called San Clemente Island, and there you do um, you know demolition and and weapon training. And the instructors are still screwing with you um, constantly because it's still SEAL training. And one of the things you have to do there is you have to earn your right to eat every meal, right? So, so breakfast was like you did a rope climb. Lunch is like a series of pull-ups, push-ups, and sit-ups and things. And then dinner was like, it was called a hill run. And so right next to the barracks, there was this huge hill. And it was like 200 meters, you know, up and then down again. And um, pretty steep. And you had to stand at the starting line. And, and the instructor would hit the stopwatch. And you had to run up to the top and hit them hit this concrete thing and then come back down and the time with which you had to do that up down decreased you know now they also used the hill run for punishments but the punishment version of the hill run was called a flight and the flight version was you stood on this starting line and instead of just being you know it just your camouflage uniform right you now had to wear your all of your ammunition your h harness with all of your ammo and stuff so that's like 40 pounds or something and then you had to put this metal moving pallet on your back those are like 75 and 80 pounds and you stood there with this this stuff and then you said request permission to take off and then you they said go and then you had to run up now you weren't running anymore you were just kind of trudging because <laughs> you have like 120 pounds of stuff and to the top of the hill and down and back that's a flight and those were usually reserved for punishments and um and so if you were lucky you didn't have to do any or many um and it was the last day before we were leaving the island and again we were it was you know we had started with 160 plus people there was only 38 of us left so we were really we were just joking around you know ecstatic we were almost done and from the outside, we hear this instructor say, uh, class 210 muster on the flight line. And so we all get out there and um, we're all kind of pissed off. <laughs> and this instructor says, okay, um, what's the fastest hill run anybody's done? And I, I think I'll just say two minutes. I don't know the time. 
And he said, okay, you're all going to do flights until someone beats that time, right? Now, again, just a reminder, a hill run is like slick. You're just running up with just your, your camouflage uniform. A flight is with all that gear, right? All that weight. And so we're all kind of ticked off. I'm not sure what sound I made or face I made that cued him into me, but he said, Ensign Divinity, do you have a problem with that? And so I stepped out of line. I said, yeah, I have a problem with that. And he said, why do you have a problem with that? I said, because this is a stupid idea. Guys are going to get hurt, you know, trying to run flights that fast. It's, it's dumb and we shouldn't be doing it. And, um, and so my whole class was dead silent. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what did I just say, right? The instructor is silent for what seems like forever and says, okay, since the... Um, since sensitivity has a problem with this, what we're going to do instead is we're going to run back to the barracks and go to the auditorium, and we're going to watch movies for the rest of the afternoon. And so we're all, like, stunned, and then somebody starts running, you know, and we're like, you know, it's, it's cool, we get high fives, and I feel great, right? Everything's cool. But that's not the reason why I tell the story. The reason why I would tell the story is 17 years later, I run into two guys from my, my class. I hadn't seen them in 17 years. I was pretty much an East Coast uh, SEAL team guy, and these guys were West Coast, so we hadn't seen each other. And we're reminiscing, and it's cool. And, and at one point, one of the guys says, hey, sir, do you remember, you, you remember that time you stood up to the instructor on, on the flight line? And, of course, I hadn't thought about it. I was like, sure, I remember. And uh, both of them at, the, at that moment say, you know, sir, we would, we would trust you anytime, anywhere. We'd follow you anytime, anywhere. And, and it occurred to me as I, th- as I thought about it. Now, usually I talk about that story when I, th- when I talk about, like, deconstructing trust and things like that. But really on a very, on a very simple level. Um, the reason why those guys still thought that way, you know, even though they hadn't seen me in 17 years, is because I had stepped out of line. I had stepped out of line in service to them. And when we look at the leadership attributes, these attributes are empathy, selflessness, decisiveness, accountability, and authenticity, right? Um, These are behaviors. And you think about stepping out of line. um, I was empathetic, right? I could feel, I mean, we all felt it. I mean, I was a student, so I felt it. But I was really feeling what everybody else was feeling. I was selfless. I mean, I, I didn't know. I mean, I honestly thought I'd be out there running hills by myself, <laughs> you know, so, you know, but I, I knew it was the right thing to do. So it was integrity there. Like I was doing the right thing for the, for these guys because I cared about them. You know, I was authentic. I was accountable and I made a decision. And so when we think about um, leadership, especially and leadership being behaviors, okay, these are, you know, people decide whether or not they want to follow us. I always say you can't self-designate as a leader, okay? That's like calling yourself good-looking or funny, okay? Um, it, it, someone, de- you know, someone else decides whether or not you are someone they want to follow, and that's based on your behaviors. And, and when you behave in that way, they, 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 that decision stands. I mean, those people think of you as leaders all the way up until you stop behaving that way, <laughs> right? I mean, so... Um, and, and that, th- th- that's long-lasting stuff. It really is, especially if you really fundamentally affect them. And they're, they're, they say, this is someone who I want to follow. And I still get, I mean, you know, I was in the, in the Navy, I was an officer. So I was, I was always in charge of something, you know. But whether I was just in charge or actually a leader depended on the people who I was in charge of. And, and I, I know for a fact that a lot of folks at, when I was in charge felt like, well, that's just the guy in charge. Because right? I wasn't behaving like a leader. But there are also people who thought of me as a leader, and I, uh, and I, I know because they've told me. I've gotten letters, I've gotten emails, I've gotten notes. Hey, I loved serving with you. Thank you so much, right? And I know it's because I behaved in a way that affected them. And so we just have to remember that these behaviors and these, these, these attributes that actually um, initiate these behaviors are so important and so powerful, especially when it comes to leadership and being on a team. Um, and that's, it's a, just a cool way to kind of exemplify that, that example. 
do you think just very quickly do you think the commanding officer was expecting that response or more than expecting it do you think that he was trying to pull out that response or did it come completely left field yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I always joke, I don't think the instructor was smart enough to be have any ulterior motive on that one. <laughs> but uh, he was a good guy. All these instructors were good guys, and they were, they were literally playing a role as instructors. Here's what I think. I think that he was, he was screwing with us. I think he probably wasn't going to make us run the hills anyway. He was just going to take us all the way up until, like, right before we had to, and then just, you know, ha-ha, joke, because that's what they did. They just, they just screw with you. Um, but I don't think he expected me to stand uh, to to um, to step up because I know after that happened the instructors treated me differently because what people understand understand about SEAL training is when you're even as an officer going through SEAL training your instructors are enlisted you know guys who are putting you through so those guys are going to put you as an officer through SEAL training then you might go to a SEAL team and they might have you as their boss right so they they want to make damn sure that they are graduating guys that they can they they want to have in charge. Um, and I think in, in me, they saw someone who was not afraid to step up, even at risk to myself, to step out of line and say, hey, this is wrong. We're not doing this, you know, and I think that was ultimately what they saw. But do I think they ex expected that to happen? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, so. But it was a powerful moment either way, right? Yeah. You know, the, yeah. What he did, I'm assuming it was a hit, what he did was take a moment to think. Again, you got that reflection point and go, actually, this is an opportunity to show that what we expect of you as leaders, what we expect totally of you agree. in the SEALs yeah. is to take a stand on behalf of your team. When something's is wrong, to, yeah. 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 Oh, before, I, before, I let you, before I let you go, I just wanted to talk to you very quickly about questions. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked a lot about the fact that we are, we're question answering machines and what we do mainly with that power is we lodge the wrong questions in our brains. Right. And so I wanted to just quickly talk me through that, the impact of that, and then what are some of the right questions that if we're going to lodge some questions in our brain in the next you know, day, week, month, what should those questions be? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's first it behooves us to understand that our brains are question-answering machines. That's exactly how our brains interrogate and figure out the world. It's constantly we're asking ourselves, have I seen this before? What have I seen? It's, we're, we're looking at something. It's bouncing off of our hippocampus and our occipital lobe, which is the catalog of everything we've seen before, saying, have I seen this? And it's making comparisons. So it's constantly asking questions. Um, what we also have to understand is when we deliberately lodge a question into our frontal lobe, right, our, our, our conscious mind, our brain has no choice but to begin to come up with answers, okay? It just does, you know? And I, I, do the, I do this experiment with classes that I teach. I just give them a question and say, okay, you get 30 seconds, write down as many things that pop into your head. And you usually get lists, whatever the question, you get lists of like at least five or six things um, because our brains just start coming up with answers. We do this oftentimes without thinking about it, but we do it the wrong way. We say things like, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Or why are these people out to get me? As soon as we ask ourselves that question, our brain begins to come up with answers. And I guarantee you those answers aren't very empowering, <laughs> you know, and, and, and a lot of them are likely ridiculous, okay, because they're just, you know, assumptions or whatever we think. Um, every high-performing team I've ever encountered, every high-performing human being that I've ever encountered has always asked better questions. They've taken conscious control of the questions they continuously, consistently ask themselves and just ask better ones. So things like, um, why am I, or what, what, what can I learn here? Um, what, am, what am I good at? Who's out there that can help me? Um, 
what can I do in this moment? Those are all questions that when you lodge those questions in your brain, you also get answers to those, right? Um, and sometimes the answers might feel a little ridiculous, but if you don't let yourself off the hook, you know, you keep on saying, what else, what else? You will come up with some answers you can use. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I, I'm, a, I'm a true believer that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent basis, you know? And, and people can use this like now. I mean, they can use it today. They can use it in traffic. They can use it in quarantine. They can just take conscious control and notice the questions you ask yourself on a consistent basis and ask different ones. And so in terms of what questions to ask, which I get a lot, um, the answer is I have no clue <laughs> because it's, it's highly subjective to the situation. However, I won't dodge the question. I will say that in, when, I'm, when I'm at a loss of what to ask, um, a really good, if you're at a loss of what to ask, a really good question to ask is what's a better question right now? Because you will then become, you know, you'll start to get better answers. I know my wife and I did this when we were in quarantine and we'd get so frustrated. We had a, have a German shepherd. We'd walk around the neighborhood and sometimes we'd take the first lap just to vent. <laughs> and then I know it's, it's a couple of particular moments where we really felt like, man, just did, there was some st stuff going on. We just didn't know. And we stopped and we said, okay, let's stop. What's a better question to ask right now? And we just start asking. We just start thinking of better questions and then ask those. And we come up with solutions together. And it's just such a powerful exercise um, that we can use, we all have access to, because our brains just automatically do it. Um, now, if you can't even ask what a best or better question to ask is right now, a really good question to ask is, what am I grateful for right now? Um, because gratitude is an incredibly powerful, it's actually one of the most powerful human emotions. Um, neurologically, biologically, neurobiologically, it generates such positive chemicals uh, in our system. Um, deep gratitude has, has healing effects. It causes DHEA. There's just so much goodness um, in gratitude. And it almost immediately gets us out of depression. <laughs> you know, it changes our state almost immediately, right? So, so uh, if you are really, really down and out and you can't even ask what a better question is, ask yourself honestly what you're grateful for. And don't let yourself off the hook, you know, because, you know, sometimes it can feel like, you know, the answer is nothing. Uh, but I just urge people, uh, if they feel like the answer is nothing, keep asking, you know, because at the end of the day, if you're breathing, that's pretty darn good, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that's the, that's a very basic one people can ask. What question are you asking right now for you, your, your life with your wife on your walk? Yeah. Well, I, I am, I ask, how can I, how can I help people explore their own potential? You know, I'm really committed to human evolution. I love the fact that we are cave dwellers that have gone to, to be space explorers. And I love the fact that we're people, we're, we're beings that can imagine something that doesn't exist and bring it into existence, you know. And, um, and I'm fascinated having been around the world and, and, and met so many different people and seen so many different people in so many different situations, uh, especially, you know, well, people and kids. Um, I've always asked myself, well, who's that next Einstein? Where is that next Einstein? And can I... Is there, is there stuff I can do and put out there to help that next Einstein uh, bubble to the surface, <laughs> right? Because I don't think I am. You know, I'm not going to solve the next, I'm not going to solve intergalactic space travel, which is a cool one, right? Uh, but maybe, you know, maybe if someone, you know, explores their attributes, <laughs> you know, they can, they can solve it, right? And then we can, we can go on a, on a vacation to, to some other planet or something like that. So, so yeah, I, I want to do my part in helping people understand that potential potential is not what is potential is always what could be you know and so 
And so it's a constant quest. We never reach our potential. All we can do is explore you know, what could be. And then it's kind of like when you get to that horizon, guess what shows up? The next horizon. And then if you, if you make a commitment to keep on marching towards your horizons, before you know it, you have a life of, of uh, just a ton of horizons that you've explored and accomplished. And you look back to what you were and you're like, man, how did I come this far? Right. And it's because you, you just kept on doing it. So that's what I want to help. One breadcrumb at a time, one adventure at a time, one curveball at a time. And one horizon at a time. <laughs> one horizon at a time. Rich, thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I probably said it in the introduction, but for any of you who want to jump onto Rich's website, take the assessment for the attributes. It's a unique, road-tested kind of insightful view into areas that we can build on and, and areas where we can maybe just pivot. A little so thank you so much thank you it's a, it's a wonderful talking to you have a wonderful you're in the future so monday looks good probably and so i'll, I'll uh, well i mean far. i am literally <laughs> i am literally intergalactic travel right now right. i come to you from the future and let me tell you the sun is shining that's right good, good. And all is well <laughs> awesome well uh well well the family i've told you this before my family we we have always wanted to get out to australia so we will at some point when all this calms down we'll get out there so uh and we'll make sure we we keep in touch and, and have a pint. So I, I promise you hand on heart when you when you come, when you come, then it's we'll we'll find a restaurant on the harbor and it's dinner on me. We'll get your family and my family. That sounds great. That sounds great. I look we'll forward to it. it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.